Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Defence Minister Richard Miles have announced in a recent media conference that the world is, quotes, undergoing significant strategic realignment. What does that mean? It's code for the fact that tensions are building between the US and China, particularly in the highly contested South China Sea. Australia is making it clear that in the event of war, it will line up in lockstep with its biggest ally. And that's why one of the first priorities in the first 100 days of the Labour government has been a strategic review of the military. Even the AUKUS Pact, the agreement between the US, the UK and Australia to deliver eight nuclear-powered submarines at the cost of $170 billion, is not going to come soon enough for them. Labour has launched a defence review because they're now looking at a time frame of 10 years for war with China. With the war in Ukraine pitting NATO against Russia, the risk of armed conflict, even nuclear war, between two or more imperialist powers is a real threat to humanity. And in these circumstances, the need to rebuild the anti-war movement and to break the Australia-US alliance has arguably never been greater. To discuss the challenges and the way forward, I'm joined today by Fei Zhang. Fei is an activist with the Anti-Orcus Coalition in Sydney and a member of Solidarity. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm or Melbourne. So welcome, Faye. Thanks for having me, David. Okay, let's start with the big one. What's behind the rising tension between the US and China? Yes, sure. So I think it's really important to see also the the, the background of long-term build-up of increasing um, economic and geopolitical um, competition between the US and China. Um, so in particular, Lenin and Bukhara and early you know, Russian revolutionary theorists uh, explained to us how when uh, states have massive economic growth, this also leads to geopolitical power as they're able to increase in their military, um, invest, you know, invest in the army and navy, and really increase their relative um, geopolitical position of power within um, the globe relative to other states and 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 the power and the power structures between different states, um, and I think this is what we've really seen happen between the U.S. and China. So the U.S. has been the overwhelming, you know, it, it, uh, hegemon within global you know, global power politics um, as the as the dominant uh, imperialist power within within the world since World War Two, and. Uh, it's really been able to dominate vast, you know, swathes of the globe with with both its its economic power and its geopolitical power. Um, but what we saw, you know, really with the uh, boom in the Chinese economy, particularly from you know, the 1970s onwards, um, we've seen decades of unprecedented, you know, sometimes over 10%, 15% growth in the Chinese economy, which means that for the first time, the US is really seeing um, the ability for China to assert itself within the, um, within the Asian, um, you know, region in the world. 
And this was really noted by, um, you know, US, the US ruling class by the 1990s um, with, with the project for the New American Century um, by George Bush. And he already at that point highlighted you know, the need for American military strategy to be able to contain the power of China within, um, within Asia um, because, you know, the ability for China to assert its power, particularly in the South China Sea, um, where the vast, you know, amount of trade um, and the particularly naval trade, which is, you know, where strategic choke points for trade are within the, uh, you know, that global trade relies on, would be critical. Um, and therefore, you know, it was important for the US to actually be able to contain China. Now, of course, they didn't want to directly launch, you know, a, a kind of military intervention in China until they had to. They still wanted to think strategically about what they were doing. But even, you know, the uh, what we saw, you know, through the 2000s, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, these were also wars that were and, and also aimed at, uh, you know, demonstrating the power of the U.S., um, US empire against against China as well and its growth in Asia. So it's, you know, it hasn't gone particularly well for the US imperialists either, whether that's, you know, being pushed out of um, Iraq and Afghanistan, whether it's, you know, their the attempt to um, control what's, what's happened in Libya or Syria. None of, it, none of it has created a serious victories for US at all in terms of its, its plan to try and assert its, its, its hegemonic power. At the same time, China's economy has continued to grow um, within Asia and they've been able to, you know, establish, really establish themselves as a, as a dominant power in the region. Uh, so I think there's there's definitely real, you know, real economic um, and therefore geopolitical tensions um, between the US and China. Um, it's definitely not an equal one. The US is still the overwhelming power, both economically and geopolitically um, in terms of in gross terms as well. Um, but I think it's important to not underestimate um, the, the potential for this to lead to further conflict. We've seen already instances of um, planes and submarines, you know, uh, being, uh, being uh, you know, missed firings and attempts between the, uh, of, by US vessels in, in, you know, the South China Sea um, and, and vice versa. So there is real escalating tension. But underneath this has been, you know, a real process of escalating competitive tension um, that's, you know, been happening for a long time over decades, um, yeah, within, within the global imperialist system. Yeah, and I think that that point's worth reinforcing that this is a systemic problem of big imperialist powers fighting over um, economic, political and geographic spaces, because a lot of people tend to think, oh, it's just bad policies or bad politicians. But actually, the US uh, conducted what they called a pivot to Asia under Obama, which was basically when we saw US Marines being based in Darwin, then Trump was aggressive, but actually Biden has continued to be in many ways just as aggressive as Trump. So it's very clear that it, the US ruling class, regardless whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, are worried that they are beginning to lose ground and are flexing their muscles accordingly. We'll look at AUKUS and Australia's other military expansion plans in a moment. But first, let's deal with a perennial argument in progressive circles that Australia is a US puppet and that we're being dragged into war for America's benefit. Quite a number of people publicly uh, like uh, Turnbull and Keating and even David Shoebridge from the Greens have recently talked about how Australia is giving up its sovereignty. 
what what do you say about that? I think firstly it's really important, um, you know, through understanding or learning Marxist theory that we understand that each state has its own interests, that as soon as you carve out an economic interest, um, you have to have some way of defending that, you know, the need for an army and navy to defend the geopolitical power of that state. So it's important to not underestimate um, each um, state that exists and their own interests um, under capitalism. Uh, I thought I think you saw that very clearly during you know the Syrian conflict, where each state within the region, you know, from the Arab different Arab um, states to you know Iran and then Western powers trying to intervene into the Syrian conflict, all had different interests. Whether that was you know different Arab powers trying to re- increase their relative power different Western states looking towards being able to defend, you know, their their own different economic and geopolitical interests. Um, every nation has, you know, has uh, is aware of their relative power in the region, in the globe. Um, so I, I think it's really important to start with that point because um, not only is that the case with smaller smaller nations, but Australia has, you know, is, has a long history of uh, pursuing a very clear uh, Australian ruling class military interest, um, and that's and, th- and that's a specific one to our region, where you know we're established as a colonial settler state. You know, we're as originally a white colony within within Asia, and it's been a long history of trying to, um, I think, assert our power. Um, in the region and you can see that through different interventions into the region where we still intervene into you know neighboring islands and countries like the Solomon Islands or Fiji you know actually trying to manipulate the political um, leaders that come into power into those countries Um, but I think a really classic example was you know the outbreak of the last um, real major um, major war in the region um, that dragged in the US which was Australia actually trying to drag the US into the Vietnam war in the 1970s, you know, being concerned about the rise of Asian powers in the region, spread of communism in their, you know, in the ruling class um, eyes and the need for the, for the US actually back Australia up. So actually Australia has, you know, asserted its own independent interests um, and that's a very specific one to being, you know, the dominant power within the Asia Pacific region. Um, so I think it's important, you know, yeah, it's really important to underestimate our role um, in actually trying to to really uh, grow and consolidate our power in the region, um, and and that I think includes very specific needs around you know defending, um, you know in particular. Uh, it struck me that Albanese um, and the, La- the Labor government recently talked about the need to look at long-range missiles, that there was a very particular need for the St- Australia to defend the north coast of um, the country um, against any kind of attack from the north, you know, the north of the border, um, that we're looking at protecting our interests in the region. You know, we've been very willing to intervene in the region um, to defend um, our own interests, make sure we have, you know, allied partners in, in the government state even if it means overriding the democracy of those countries. And I think the role, it's important to understand the role with the US, not as a puppet, but actually, you know, a a Western alliance, you know, that that is trying to prop up both the US power and Australian power. You know, it's it's an alliance. Um, It's not a a dominating um, 
relate relationship. Um, because if we don't understand that, then we don't we can kind of we can underestimate you know the intentions of the Australian government as well and how it's as it has in the past actually tried to pull bigger powers you know behind us such as the US into war in the region as well. Now you talked about states having military spending. Wow, Australia is really splurging on military spending at the moment. And stockpiling weapons of war is always a worry. But when we look at the housing, health and education crises that workers face and the need to invest in a rapid transition to a renewable economy, it's particularly obscene. So what's on the Department of Defence shopping list? Take us through their wish list. Sure. So I think it's, you know, it's just actually quite horrifying when you look at, you know, all the different um, military um, apparatuses they're trying to to fund at the moment. I mean, it's obvious that the Australian government is preparing for war, even with the size of the Australian Defence Force. So, um, and Labor has said, the Labor government has said and that they will commit to the amount of funding that Morrison, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison, um, previously put into the budget. Um, so Morrison said in train the increase in the size of the Australian Defence Force by 30% mm-hmm. by 2040, which would be the largest size since the Vietnam War in the 1970s. Um, and it's also looking to increase its purchase of military hardware um, at a cost of $270 billion over 10 years, um, which is an mm-hmm. extraordinary um, escalation of funding for weapons. Um, you know, one of the, I think, the most, uh, you know, the uh, the most widely publicised um, investments is the AUKUS Pact, which is a nuclear submarine deal between um, Australia, the UK and the US to deliver eight nuclear-powered submarines by 2050, the cost of $170 billion. Um, but they've also recently announced plans now to uh, spend a billion dollars on high-tech underwater sea mines, um, which is Australia's first investment since uh, in sea mines since the Vietnam War. They're self-contained uh, explosive devices that can be placed in key strategic choke points, such as straits and harbours, to blow up encroaching vessels. Um, and then there are also, you know, a range of other, uh, you know, horrifying um, weapons they want to invest in. Um, so they plan to purchase the Seahawk combat helicopters, Renaissance helicopters, 72 joint strike fighter jets at the cost of $16.6 billion. The latest cutting edge land combat vehicles costing up to $27 billion. Short and long range missile systems, um, naval patrol vessels, weapon systems, um, and, and, you know, a a range of other, uh, other weapons. So it's, it's really horrifying, you know, when you can see that, you know, as you say, shopping list of, military weapons and you know large um you know large infrastructures such as you know being able to uh you know uh, acquire and um, maintain nuclear powered submarines um that the government is really you know investing in and preparing for and you know it's obviously a, a preparation for war because why else would they be um investing in such a broad um you know large range of weapons hmm. and of course the focus of that war is China. And I've certainly, I've had discussions and disagreements with people um, over the submarines. You get people who say uh, that Australia needs submarines to defend itself. Now, why is it the case that the nuclear submarines are nothing to do with the self-defence of Australia? That's all I've put back to people. Uh, What do you say? 
Yes. I mean, I think the first thing is to acknowledge that there is, as we've said, there is real economic, you know, economic and geopolitical competition, but it's in no way an equal competition. Um, it's not about the US Australia need to defend itself against China. Um, the the US still maintains an overall military superiority by a large margin. Um, you know, even if you read uh, strategists within the ruling classes, you know, opinion pieces, they they also admit that a direct military threat from China against Australia is remote because of the unequal power dynamics. Um, so beneath the rhetoric of the government and this heightened fear, you know, it's stirring up this fear of China, there's, there's actually very, very, um, still a very, very unequal power dynamic. Um, so it's the US, for example, that has encircled China. It's not China encircling, you know, Australia, or the US. The US has encircled China with military bases, um, aircraft carrier strike groups off its coasts, um, and despite, you know, any overtures, China is, still does not have the capability of uh, any kind of comparable level of military aggression at the US or, or Australia. Um, so uh, the US, on the other hand, um, you know, has flown over a record number of spy planes into the South China Sea in, in 2021. Um, the US conducted nearly 1,200 reconnaissance raids over the South China Sea, an increase over 20% from 2020. Um, four separate US carrier strike groups entered the South China Sea a total of 10 times. This is double the number for 2020. Um, and the West and its allies already have uh, 100 submarines compared to China's 79. The US has a belt of 750 military bases circling the globe while China has just one foreign military base. Um, and after, you know, the failures of US imperialism in Vietnam and, and Iraq wars, US feels like it needs to assert its power as global hegemon. Um, but let's not, you know, pretend that this is an equal conflict. Um, this is about the US needing to defend its power. It's not about, you know, China feeling like it, it can assert any kind of global power. So beneath all the rhetoric and fear that's being created and racism, um, it's important to see that actually this is, you know, a it is an assertive, you know, attack by by Western powers um, against against China. Yeah, and in that context, nuclear submarines for Australia can be nothing other than an aggressive move, because the only reason to buy nuclear powered submarines is so that they can spend a lot of time underwater in the South China Sea, while being armed with cruise missiles, which potentially at some point in the future could uh, carry nuclear warheads. So those nuclear those uh, nuclear powered submarines are not about defending the landmass. Um, that not that that's necessary anyway. They are about aggressively pushing missiles into uh, China's backyard. Really, the leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton, um, has been beating the drums of war over Taiwan. He did so in government, and he's keeping going. And in fact, Scott Morrison has come out with uh, just. Uh, the day we're recording this, come out with another a very um, inflammatory speech against China. Labour's a bit more circumspect, but it's clear that if the US goes to war with China over Taiwan, Australia will be involved. Why is Taiwan such a flashpoint? And what should socialists say? Yeah, so I think, you know, building on kind of what I um, just described earlier, the US is not in a particularly, you know, overall, in terms of overall power, 
it's not in a position where it's going strength from strength to strength. So it's not a, it's not normally at the moment looking to to launch launch you know full scale war um, like it did for example you know in um, the war against Iraq. Um, it's looking for ways in which it can it can try and assert its power um, without having to launch you know full scale um, land attack or naval attack which it knows it it cannot win. Um, and I think you've seen this, um, you know, currently with, um, you know, the decimation of the war of Ukraine and the war in Ukraine, which is really sending a message to Russia and China. Um, but it's looking for, you know, easy targets um, to defend its power. Um, and I think, you know, that's a similar, you know, the kind of dynamic of a, of a proxy war where a smaller country is used to assert, you know, broader um, imperialist um you know, dynamics is is what's happening with Taiwan, um, and and Taiwan has a contested legacy legacy because of past imperialist interventions. So Western-backed nationalists retreated to Taiwan during their defeat by Mao's Communist Party in the Chinese Civil War in 1949. Um, and you know, since uh, the you know the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity in 1972 um, under Pre President Richard Nixon. Um, they've sought to normalize relations um, with with China to draw out the orbit um, out draw China out of the orbit of the USSR during the Cold War, um, and Taiwan op op occupies a really strategic location within within geopolitical um, the geopolitical map. So China is highly dependent on sea lanes for trade and imports of strategic commodities like oil, um, and in the event of war, the US could use control. Um, along the first island chain, as it's known, off the Chinese coast, including you know countries like Taiwan and Japan, its allies and the Philippines, um, and the island of Borneo to to really impose a naval blockade on China. So Taiwan can be used as you know uh, for its history of Western-backed you know um, you know power, uh, allies allyship with with the US um, and also as a strategic uh, look, uh, country in terms of its location with China to really um, send a message to China that um, you know the US is is on the tack that you know you should back off and be aware of the dynamic um, and the power of, of the US empire and that was really seen I think in you know, Nancy Pelosi, um, the US um, speaker's visit to Taiwan, um, you know, at, uh, recently, that was a message to say, hey, you know, this is us going into your, you know, coming into your near territory to say you should, you know, you, you should be aware of, um, you should be wary of the power that we kind of hold um, and, to, and to stay in, stay in your lane. Um, and we won't be afraid to, um, to use Taiwan as a, as as a center of conflict to assert uh, our power. Yeah, every military expert I read on uh, the Taiwan situation seems to have a different opinion about how easy or difficult it would be for either China or America to win that war if it broke out over Taiwan. But I think the losers are an absolute given. They're the people of Taiwan. They're people in China. And if the conflict goes nuclear, then we're talking about uh, massive destruction on, on a regional, if not a, a global scale. So I think we have every reason to say that Australia should not be backing the US in its drive to war over Taiwan. Um, it, it, this would war would be a total disaster. Now, it's possible that by the time this podcast goes to air, that Australia, the US and the UK will have announced a nuclear submarine deal under the AUKUS agreement. 
how should the anti-war movement respond and what are the key arguments that we need to win? And I think, you know, for us in Australia, uh, the main issue, and I think, you know, for other activists and socialists in, you know, Western countries as well, the main thing we need to do is break the support of the public for any kind of intervention or war against, you know, Taiwan or China. Um, that's it's it's obviously building up into a, you know potential conflict. You know, as you said at the beginning, um, the government, the Labor government, very explicitly has said they're preparing for some kind of conflict within the next uh, ten years. Um, so I think it's it's really yeah it's important to um, first oppose the escalation um, of war. Um, but I think that means being able to explain so many of the different political issues that, that come up or that we've discussed today as well to, you know, whether that's other unionists in your workplace or people um, that we speak to, you know, in our communities or trying to build, you know, rallies or um, meetings against the war. Um, we need to be able to explain that actually the aims of the Australian government or the aims of the US government, you know, are not to defend our population, not to defend us against um you know, any kind of attack. Actually, it's it's the West that's going into, you know, conflict within Asia because it's worried about its global power um, and it wants to send a very clear message that it's overwhelming dominant power that can go into whatever country and do, you know, whatever it wants and still get away with that, um, you know, at the moment. Um, so I think it's important to highlight that, that it is an escalation by the West um, and that, that there's nothing to benefit from this. I mean, you know, you can understand, you, you know, it's very clear, I think, for a lot of people looking at the nuclear submarine deal, the billions and billions of dollars that are being invested into this while we have, you know, rental crisis, you know, in Sydney at the moment where it's, I know most of, you know, my friends, you, you either have your rent increased or it's too expensive to be able to find anywhere near where you work or where your friends live. Like we are in a crisis, domestic, you know, an inflation and rental crisis domestically, um, but we're going to spend billions and billions of dollars preparing for a nuclear, um, you know, submarines um, where, you know, actually the result of actually using nuclear submarines as well is you know could bring us into the into onto the into the brink of nuclear you know global nuclear war because you're looking at major global imperialist powers. Um, it actually makes no sense for the majority of people um, to support something like the nuclear, you know, AUKUS and the nuclear submarine deal. Um, let alone you know any kind of you know it will be um, as we've seen in Ukraine in the Ukraine war. Um, it's you know they they can try and try and hide momentarily behind their drones, but it's you know it's millions of people that can die as a result of you know the the kind of technology and military spending they're putting behind all the high tech um, you know weapon weaponry they're using to prepare for war. Um, this is to the detriment of all you know working class people in our communities in the West, um, and there's no way that we should support. Um, you know, our ruling class in, in going into war, escalating any further military conflict or investing into into further weaponry mm -hmm. um, and being able to break that support, I think, and turn that into real active opposition. I think that's the key challenge for us at the moment is to oh. highlight the danger of this and um, but also I think, you know, bring people into a movement that can understand the possibility for alternatives. You know, I think it's really important we put forward in the anti-war movement, for example, 
you know, fund renewable, public renewable energy, not um, nuclear, you know, nuclear submarines. We have a we have a whole world to win. That's at you know the brink of climate crisis, at the brink of nuclear war, you know, the brink of you know poverty and starvation, um, increasing poverty and starvation for a lot of working class people. So they're really key arguments. So I think there's a lot of potential to generate momentum in workplaces in the streets, um, particularly as you know we're at the beginning of this period, and if we can start to generate rate um, you know, small at the beginning, small layers of people, and hopefully then larger, you know, mobilizations of people, then that can build real momentum against possibility of war. And as we've seen in the past, so of course, the most obvious example is the massive, you know, uh, movement against the Vietnam War, which led to moratoriums, strikes, you know, political strikes in workplaces that that met in cities that, that really played a key part in ending the war in Vietnam. So I think there's a lot of potential for activists to get involved. Mm. And obviously we have no truck with Xi Jinping and the, uh, the regime in Beijing. They're not our friends, um, but also they're not the friends of Chinese workers. And it's been really exciting in recent months to see open political dissent in China, obviously short-lived, but nonetheless at a level that we haven't seen in quite a long time. And I think we can say with greater confidence than perhaps we would have done in the past, our allies in the fight against war are ordinary Chinese people who themselves are suffering you know, budget cuts because of military spending. That military spending on both sides of the divide is is hurting ordinary working class people. So I think we can raise the banner of international solidarity with Chinese workers uh, and students uh, with with some confidence uh, and make it clear that we're against their regime, but we're not against them. Look, in Melbourne, we're going to be on the streets on the 18th of March against AUKUS, against the threat of war with China and against nuclear submarines and also calling for freedom for Julian Assange. So if you are in Melbourne on the 18th of March, come to the State Library at one o'clock and, and join the rally. But what's planned elsewhere? What What's the next step for the anti-AUKUS coalition in Sydney, for instance, and how can people get involved? Uh, sure. So we're going to be organising um, some smaller pickets um, just around the, the recent announcements around the strategic um, military review. Um, they'll be on the the 24th of February in Sydney. Um, but our main game will be um, the big uh, quad meeting that will be happening in Sydney um, with world leaders, uh, including the US, coming to Australia to discuss essentially how they're going to build an alliance against China in the region. Um, so that looks like it will happen between the 19th to 21st of May. Um, but and, the, when, and the quad is Japan, India, Australia and the US. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yes, it will be, I think, a pretty big opportunity for the anti, yeah, for anti-war activists to come together in a centralised rally. Um, we're hoping to build a broad coalition in the lead up to the rally um, and have a large centralised demonstration there um, and, and bringing a whole range of groups that, you know, as we mentioned, um, there's, there's, you know, so many different climate groups who've seen the amazing school strikes um, 
for climate action um, and there'll be one in Sydney in, in March as well, um, you know, that we can come along demand um, funding for renewable energy, not nuclear energy, but also really amazing smaller initiatives that have happened in local peace groups already. You know, we've had tens of thousands of people signing petitions within local peace groups um, and, and sent them through to sent them through to newspapers. Um, so there's a lot of possibility, I think, for us to gather, um, you know, into a, a really strong unified central um, demonstration in May in Sydney, um, you know, potentially I think for people to come to Sydney from other places as well, whether that's you know, the places where they're looking to build um, the potential military bases to house the AUKUS um, submarine, nuclear-powered submarines down in Wollongong or further up the coast or from other cities as well. I think we can look at all those potentials and it's great to see that nationally there has been um, different groups starting to pop up again um, and to different anti-war groups that are, are recognising the significance of this. And you know, very importantly, even in places like the Northern Territory where you're seeing the expansion of military bases, you know, little local groups that are recognising, hey, this is part of a broader, you know, broader strategy by the Australian government for preparing for war. We don't want it in our communities. You know, we don't want it in our cities. And um, I think the quad protests could be a really great way of unifying that into a really strong, you know, stance and drawing a bit of, drawing a line in the sand that, hey, if you escalate this war, we're going to also escalate our anti-war activity. Absolutely. Look, I'll put at least a couple of links for Sydney and Melbourne and maybe for others for anti-AUKUS coalition groups. I'll put that in the description so people can click through and get involved. Um, thanks, Faye.